the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. After an extraordinary price surge at the start of the year, Bitcoin has spent the last six months going, well, sideways. Is that about to change? Remember, Bitcoin ended 2022 at about $16,600, and then it started 2023 with a sprint to $25,000, then hit a peak just above $30,000. It's been range-bound since March, trading between $25,000 and $28,000 for most of that time. If the big story of 2022 was the collapse of high-flying scams like FTX, 2023 promised to bring billions of fresh funds into Bitcoin with the hopeful launch of exchange-traded funds. There's also the upcoming halving, where Bitcoin issuance is throttled by half every four years. Currently, 6.25 Bitcoin are issued every 10 minutes. In 2024, that drops by half to just a little over 3 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. This is important because it's usually preceded by a bull run. At least that has been the case prior to all previous halvings. Could it be different this time? To answer that question, we're joined by Jason Welts, who is head of digital assets at alternative investment company Jeltec. Jason has spent most of his life deeply immersed in the crypto space. Hi, Jason. It's good to have you on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. Could you answer the question I just posed in the intro? Why has Bitcoin been so flat these last six months? Hi, Kieran. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I mean, to, to address that question, there's been a lot of crypto-specific news developments over the year, but really price action this year has primarily been a macroeconomic story with um, performance of, of crypto and Bitcoin really kind of mirroring performance of risk assets el- elsewhere, um, particularly in, in U.S. equities. So, I mean, markets really rallied quite, quite hard in the beginning of the year up until the end of March, as, as you noted. And that really was driven by primarily the, the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank in, in the United States and the subsequent release of a lot of liquidity from, from the monetary authorities there, which supported risk assets across the board, really. You see a, quite, a, quite a sharp stock rally around that time as well, as well as a, a big rally in crypto. Now, subsequent to, to, to that real news story, Markets really have, have been holding onto those gains without really doing much um, either way elsewhere. And really, it's, the story is one of massive macroeconomic uncertainty. So we, we see that the economy in, in the US has been quite, quite strong, a little bit stronger than, than forecast at the beginning of the year. And that has caused recession forecasts to be continually pushed, pushed back. Um, now, generally, a strong economy means rising long-term interest rates. And that typically um, will hold back, hold back risk asset performance a little bit. Now... That's that's really the, the 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 macro story, one of kind of declining fundamentals, but but after after a big rally and monetary support coming in response. In terms of crypto, it's been up and down in terms of the news stories. There's been a lot of regulatory developments, in particular in the U.S. with the United States uh, Securities Exchange Commission going after a number of, of large crypto companies, including uh, the largest crypto exchange in the world and the largest crypto exchange in the U.S., alleging that they're uh, offering un, unregulated securities to their customers, and that is really weighed down the market, particularly for altcoins. But when you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin's fared a little bit better, not being alleged as, as a security by the SEC, and then supported by this narrative of impending listing of spot ETFs in the US, um, which would be a real boon for demand, as it would actually lead to investment demand in these ETF products driving spot Bitcoin purchases. Whereas currently, um, there are some ETF products listed in the US that are backed by futures exposure. However, 
more demand into those products doesn't necessarily guarantee more demand for actual underlying Bitcoin. Yeah, so I've, I've rammed a little bit, little bit there, but but that's that's essentially a very high level story about what's happened over the year. Um, and we see that there's been a lot of conflicting forces. Some some kind of supporting crypto, um, some weighing down crypto, and on balance, uh, we've, we've seen pretty much sideways action since since March. You made the point there about liquidity in the market, and one of the things that we have seen during the year is there's been a release of, the, there was a famous hack back in 2014, Mt. Cox, and I forget the exact details, but I think at the time it was worth about 40 million rands worth of Bitcoin was stolen. That's worth billions today. Now, the, the FBI managed to recover most, if not all, of that uh, Bitcoin, and it has been selling that into the market. Has that been a factor in, in keeping the price sort of range-bound as it has been? So there haven't actually been sales from this Mt. Cox um, event yet, but the expectation of of sales of let me just give you a high level picture of the story. Um, in twenty fourteen, there was this this massive crypto exchange, or, or massive by the standards then, which which really dominated about ninety percent of all crypto trading volumes at the time. Um, that exchange in twenty fourteen announced that hey, we don't actually have the Bitcoin on hand to cover all of our liabilities to to our customers, um, and they declared bankruptcy. And since twenty fourteen, there's been massive or very long bankruptcy proceedings uh, that look like they'll be wrapped up next year. Um, at the time of the bankruptcy, they they had, I think, about 70% of the Bitcoin um, on hand to meet customer liabilities. Um, and as you said, valued at somewhere in the range of, of, of a billion rand at the time. Whereas now, almost 10 years on, um, that Bitcoin is worth somewhere in the region of 100 billion rand. So, yeah. So, so the expectation is that as these bankruptcy proceedings um, kind of reach a conclusion, um, creditors to, to Mt. Gox get paid out, and their payout is worth 10x more than the, than the money that they lost in the exchange initially. Um, the expectation is then that these people are going to be selling selling their, their receipts, um, overwhelming incentive to, to, to take some profits at that stage. And as, as this Bitcoin is released, um, markets or, or a lot of people in the market are expecting a big sell-off. Are the people who uh, had their Bitcoin stolen, are they likely to get back all of the Bitcoin that was stolen or are they going to get 70 cents in the dollar? Or what is it going to be? So creditors have, have an option to either get paid out in dollars or in the actual Bitcoin that they, they held on the exchange. So if they opt for a dollar cash out, um, then it's on the US government to go out and, and, and liquidate on their behalf and then send them the sales proceeds. They're not going to get a full recovery in Bitcoin terms um, because not all the Bitcoin was there to be recovered. But their payout in, in, in a dollar or rand value will be a lot larger than, than their losses that they would have recorded in 2014, just uh, by virtue of, of Bitcoin's um, price appreciation uh, the last 10 years. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. They're, so they, they, they're actually going to come out wealthier, even though they're going to get less Bitcoin than they initially had, purely because they've been forced to sit through this whole agonizing 10-year process of unwinding the the hack that took place back in 2014 at Mt. Gox. Yeah, so it's an interesting thought experiment to think about, would you have been better off uh, having that Bitcoin on hand trade over the last 10 years or, or just being forced to hold? And I think, I think the overwhelming majority of people who fell victim to, to the collapse of the exchange are, are better off than they would have been otherwise. So quite a funny story, but, but um, it is nice that, that people are going to, to be made whole eventually or close to whole. But I guess the, the downside is, you know, you mentioned, uh, I didn't realize it was a billion dollars at the time, um, which is now worth about a hundred billion. Um, no, so I think, I think it was about a hundred, I, I believe about a billion rand at the time. 
A billion um, rand at the time. Okay, about a hundred billion rand now. Yeah. Uh, okay, which, which in in yeah. uh, dollar terms is is not terribly significant. However, you know, if you start selling that into the market, that's additional supply that's uh, not being counted on by the, the the Bitcoin protocol. Certainly, that could weigh down on prices, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, I mean, there's. There's kind of two schools of thought you can take. You can either look at, at crypto and, and financial markets as being efficient, um, and you therefore subscribe to what, what we call in economics the uh, or in finance uh, as the efficient market hypothesis, which basically says that if there's any public information, it, it should already reflect in, in market prices um, as soon as that information is published. Now, if you subscribe to this theory of markets, um, really the, the, the impending release of this Bitcoin should have no impact on prices because we've known about it for years. It's been expected. Um, it should already fully be priced in. Um, but if you, if you, you take a, a more potentially pra- more pragmatic stance and you say, well, clearly crypto markets aren't efficient. Prices are very volatile. In an efficient market, you wouldn't see such massive price volatility. Um, and you can make a jump from that to say, well, they're not efficient, therefore it shouldn't. It hasn't been priced in, and we probably will see some weakness. I'm really not sure. Very difficult to call. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, um, but I don't think people should be overly, overly bearish um, at the prospect of of this release. All right. So we spoke about the halvings that are happening. There's there's halvings that happen every four years with Bitcoin, and there's one happening next year. Now, every previous time this has happened, there's been a bull run before the halving takes place. Is this going to be different this time, do you think? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to say. So, I mean, most in, in previous cycles, you're right that there, there has typically been a bit of an appreciation beforehand, but the, the biggest the biggest sort of rally takes place about six to nine months after the halving, um, and that's when we see the, the, the most massive appreciation. If you actually compare this the, the two-year period in the run-up to, to next year's halving, and you kind of overlay it on, on previous previous... <laughs> Previous preceding periods, um, with a picture that looks pretty similar. We, 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 I mean, it doesn't feel like we've had a massive rally, um, but if you look at where we came from, the depths from last year, we've we've, we've had a almost a hundred percent rally. So, um, in that way, the cycle is shaping up to be a similar one. But what is different to previous cycles is the macroeconomic climate. So, uh, where previously inflation was under control and rates were near zero. Now we're in a situation where it's not clear that inflation is under control and interest rates are definitely not at zero, which should be a lot less of a constructive backdrop for, for risk assets like Bitcoin. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult to say what's, what's going to happen. Um, exciting to see how it plays out in the context of these, these other forced sales. All right. So one factor that's been suggested as a break on the Bitcoin price is slowing adoption. I don't know if that is entirely true that there is slowing adoption, but we're not seeing the, the the mammoth growth in Bitcoin ownership that we saw back in 2017, for example, during that massive bull run. Do you think there's any truth in this? And what do you see as the barriers to adoption? I, I mean, it's still quite technically challenging for a lot of people for the mass market to start buying and exchanging Bitcoin because it's all, it's really based on addresses. And if you send it to the wrong address, there's no intermediary there that's going to reverse that transaction. <laughs> you send it to the wrong address, it's gone, it's done. So what do you think of the problems here? Yeah, cool. So these are these are really good questions and, and things to, to be thinking about. And while it's definitely, definitely true that um, on-chain activity is way, way below uh, where it peaked in 2021 during, during the hype, um, it's important to note that 
really most of the activity that's taking place on any blockchain at this point in time is dominated by retail investors who are very cyclical in their participation. When when prices are rising rapidly and, and you hear about crypto in the news, people are rushing to blockchains to invest or to to speculate and you, you see usership really, really grow. Now, while retail participation has just kind of dropped off to to, uh, to to quite low levels, we're seeing in the kind of corporate world that that uh, Bitcoin and, and crypto is still being looked at and taken very seriously. Um, even if you just look at the last three months, um, we've seen a, a pilot from from Visa um, that on the on the Solana blockchain that basically provides for basically allows merchants to to accept crypto payments for their websites and that that pilot includes massive retailers like Shopify. Also kind of in the stablecoin space, uh, we see that that um, MoneyGram, which is a, a major uh, international money transfer business operating in about, I think, 110 jurisdictions around the world. Um, they've also recently also started accepting um, stablecoin cash ins as well as cash outs. So the, the value proposition and the utility of, of blockchains as payment rail especially for international payments, is being recognized and, and explored by a lot of, lot of major companies. Visa wouldn't be running this pilot unless they had some reasonable prospects in, in, in its value. And yeah, I mean, we're seeing central banks around the world continuing to investigate uh, central bank digital currencies and, and their, their use cases in, in, in the country. So it's clear that there is appetite there and there, is a, there, there continues to be a, a growing realization that, that crypto has real world value and can improve efficiency uh, on a global global scale. But I think the major barriers to kind of that uh, vision being realized, the first, I guess, is, is education, just just getting decision makers comfortable and then up to speed with, with, the, with the crypto ecosystem and then how it works and getting them feeling comfortable with, with, with adopting it um, to their existing business practices. Um, I guess the second, second thing that I'd highlight is definitely the I guess something that you spoke to already, the, the user friendliness of crypto. I think that there can be a lot more done to, to make it more user friendly, make it more difficult to, to be hacked, allow people to opt into a custodial service with, uh, with perhaps their own bank managing, managing their on-chain activity, someone that they trust, but then still having the ability to opt out of that and, and, and manage your things by yourself. And I think that is, that is the sweet spot that crypto needs to find instead of being this niche technical thing that you need to study for years to actually be able to to, to use it without getting scammed, um, to make it something that you can you can opt into that 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 model of crypto, but you can also just use it for for its its, its benefits in in terms of processing payments. Um, yeah, so I mean those are those are my kind of high level thoughts on, on on the topic. Yeah, on that point, I just see that Valor put out a statement today that they had. Um done a deal with Visa, the world's largest credit card company. It's a strategic partnership for the issuance of Visa cards and delivery of other digital payment solutions, very much in line with what you've just been saying. So we are beginning to see major mainstream companies beginning to look at crypto and some of the efficiencies that it can introduce. And of course, that was one of the promises of blockchain. You know, there's this whole thing about being frictionless and there being no intermediaries. There's an upside and there's a downside to that. The downside being that you cannot reverse a transaction that has been incorrectly sent. But the upside is it reduces costs tremendously. Now, it has been said about blockchain that it was a solution in search of a problem. And it seems a little bit facetious to say that, but what are some of the use cases for crypto that have 
become real game changers as of you know the last year or two? Quite apart from Bitcoin and Ethereum and these traded digital assets. Yeah, so I mean, I guess that I mean that that first statement being a a solution in in search of a problem. I mean, perhaps if you if you're writing from the perspective of someone who spent their entire life in in the developed world in the U.S. or the U.K. Um, where financial systems work seamlessly and the inflation hasn't really been a problem in your lifetime. Um, but I can promise you, if you've grown up in Venezuela, Argentina, Zimbabwe, for instance, you definitely realize the value proposition of, of crypto, being able to, to access a dollar bank account, being able to not be subject to the whims of, of, of your government or your financial authorities in your country. Um, these are massive, massive benefits that, that I think people overlook in, in the developed world. And really, a, a borderless, trustless, and and um, permissionless financial system does offer a lot of a lot of value to a lot of people globally. I mean, yeah. So, so, so that's 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 something I'd like to just pre- uh, preface my answer with. Um, but definitely, in terms of where it's already adding value, international uh, dollar transfers, it's already the cheapest way to to, to facilitate one of those. Um, I can send money offshore within within less than an hour; it will arrive. At the, at the intended destination, um, cost me less than 10 Rand. If I try and do that through Swift, it's going to take me almost a week um, and cost me upwards of 500 Rand to, 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 to make happen. But I think for me, the most really like the benefit that the people don't really see or hasn't really be- become clear yet because it hasn't really reached mainstream, but being able to unlock um, idle capacity, whether that's processing power or cloud storage capacity, Blockchains enable you to set up trustless, borderless systems um, and marketplaces for these products. So there's quite a few products in, in the crypto space that speak to the cloud storage solution, um, where essentially I can, at home, I see I've got 100 gigabytes free on my hard drive. Um, I could literally participate in the network, uh, allocate that 100 gigs to the to the network, um, store some some data on behalf of some other anonymous parties, you won't even know what the data is because it'll be encrypted. Um, but you anonymously store that data, you prove that you store it, and you get paid for for that service. But it's cheaper than than going through Google or Amazon because uh, the, the the capacity is sitting idle. It's it's not not being used. It's, it's, it can be priced really really cheaply um, because it's currently got no price attached to it. So I mean, those are the kind of use cases that I think are really going to be transformational in the long term. Being able to unlock economic efficiency outside of just the financial system. Um, I think that's that's really where, where crypto's future lies for, in, in my mind. Interesting. There's a lot of talk about Web 3. We're currently living in Web 2. And Web 1 was the first time that you could access a page with some information on the internet. Explain this evolution to our listeners who are having a little bit of trouble understanding what is this Web 3 and how is it important for us? Cool. So, I mean, like I like to think about the web as kind of developing along a spectrum. So so maybe web one, web two, web three, they're not so clearly defined. It's difficult to draw the line exactly. Um, but typically people, when they think of web one, they think of uh, an internet where you can really just read read things and, and see other content that other people are putting out there towards you, static content that, that doesn't really, that you can't really interact with. So think uh, a newspaper or a news website with, without any comment section. Um, web two really the big driving force behind the development was was encryption becoming a lot more commonly used and, and understood. And that allowed us to transmit data between uh, users on the internet, um, but um, without without having to expose that data to, to, to everyone. Now that allows sort of messaging and, and forums and, and interactive um, 
spaces to to to, to profit from the internet, and that that includes really Web two kind of the quintessential Web two product, I guess, is is something like Facebook. Web three takes this one step further, so it goes from read write. Um, I'm sorry, from Web one, which is just read, um, Web two, which is read write, and Web three, which is um, read write and own. So basically web3 adds a value layer to the internet i can transmit value between people um just as easily as i can transmit data so now i can have a facebook but i can also monetize everything in, inside that facebook platform that i that, that i launch in crypto so instead of advertising revenue going just to facebook uh, that can be shared with users for instance and you end up with these with these ecosystems that are more sustainable and where everyone participating has more aligned incentives no, so that's that's really that's really how I like to think about Web three, and it all hinges on developments in cryptography. So Web two really encryption, um, Web three uh, the cryptography that backs blockchains, so the hashing functions, um, etc. Okay, so I mean, I guess with Web three, what we're really talking about, and it has been speculated that it's going to unleash this absolute torrent of creativity and entrepreneurship because there's so many more ways that people can monetize their their work. You know, you could put out an article there and you could ask people to, you know, pay you 10 cents just to read it. For that to happen, you know, you're going to have to have digital wallets which are more connected. Uh, you're going to have to have much more adoption of these digital wallets and cryptocurrencies. But is, is this kind of the vision that you see for the future, this unleashing of creativity enabled by this, uh, this read, write and own type of internet? Yeah, so I mean, I like to always think of it in, in terms of like economic efficiency, right? But but part of economic efficiency and part of innovation is creativity, right? So all these other benefits that I've mentioned, um, unlocking idle capacity, um, unlocking idle creativity is 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 very much in the same vein. So um, I, I definitely would agree with your assertion that that's kind of where things are going. Um, I don't think it's it's going to be an overnight thing. Um, I think I think the transition will still be happening um, late into our lifetimes, but. But I, I do really think it is quite a paradigm shift for, for, for society that, that we're in the very early stages of. Okay, so we're running out of time here. Final thoughts. What are the developments in crypto that we need to watch for in the next year or two? Cool. So, I mean, the, the, the big hotspots, as ever, really remain uh, regulations in the U.S. And, and, and developments there, where the U.S. Congress kind of steps in to, to regulate crypto um, outside of the, the, the ambit of, of SEC. Um, that's definitely something to continue to watch. Development on the listings of ETFs in the US. That's that's another kind of thing that's that's fairly easy to to keep track of. But other than that, I mean, if you have conviction in the fundamental values and and value proposition of crypto, and you think it's going to eventually form um, blockchains are going to form the, the value transfer layer of the internet uh, long term, then really it's not so important to watch the day to day news. Um, zoom out, look at what prices have done over the last last ten years. Um, and think about how many news stories took place over that time. But really, the only, the only important one is that the technology continues to be adopted. Fantastic stuff. Thanks for joining us, Jason Vels, who is the head of digital assets at Alternative Investment Company, Jeltec. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Karen, for your time. And uh, thanks to all your listeners for tuning in. for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app 
and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.